Mainline Podcast, Adam Jacquez and Tyler Burton with you as always. Tonight, uh, we're talking some bad news at first, and we're going to get that out of the way so that we can then break down the offense. Uh, so we're just a couple weeks away from the season starting. Offense this week, defense and special teams next week, and then we'll be in game week mode. Uh, but before we dive into those breakdowns, Tyler, are you in a party mood? Are you feeling like you're up for some tailgating? It's about damn time. Obviously, that was the big breaking news, you know, out of Oklahoma today coming out of Norman. I feel like the fan base needed that after the last 24 hours, obviously, with the williams area recruitment. But yes, tailgating is back on Lindsay Street. Um, it's not as much as I thought it was going to be. But you know what? It's baby steps. We're going to, you know, we're going to kind of slowly phase it back in for the 2023 season. And, uh, you know, like friend of the podcast, George Doyle reported, there is more coming in 2024, the inaugural SEC season. But when you think about tailgating, you think about Oklahoma, you think about transitioning into the SEC, you've got to have Lindsay Street, you know, um, you know, right there outside the South Oval, outside the South End Zone. You've got to have tents. You've got to have fans. Um, it makes that walk of champions that much better. It makes the uh, uh, the atmosphere for the incoming recruits that much better, you know, walking through, seeing the passion of the fan base. And I think that the biggest winner out of them all is, you know, the fan base as a whole. Um, you know, we've talked about Adam for, you know, time and time. We can kind of dive into this here in just a little bit to, you know, kind of kick this thing off. Uh, there's been a lot of mixed emotions, mixed feelings amongst the fan base when it comes to the tailgate guys, you know, the corporate uh, structure. We talked about that last week with Corbin, but I think that this – you couldn't have asked for anything better. This is how it was supposed to be pre-David Boren, you know, uh, factoring in the honors colleges and, you know, kind of taking that space away. But this is something that, you know, um, Oklahoma fans deserve. And when you come to a blue blood, a place like Oklahoma going into the SEC, you got to have something like this. I think that this is just going to make the game day environment that much better all the way around. Yeah, I I'm kind of of the mood of like, I'm tired of all the complaining about it. So like at this point, no excuses for OU fans not no. to show up, not to pack out, not to just move your tailgate from a different part of campus to there and have the same amount of tailgating. Like this is time for OU fans to show out, uh, show up, have that rowdy home environment, despite any type of home schedule that might happen this year. Um, so go out and prove it. You know, um, you know, I'm, I'm a part of that fan base too, that often complains about a lot of different things, but like, it's time to just, you know, shut up and not like go out and prove it now. Um, you know, we've got a lot of big goals going into the SEC. So well, you just hope that something that can help out. A yeah. Lot and you that. just hope that all those people that made those phone calls that we took over the course <laughs> of two and a half, three years that were always griping about it. Um, you hope that those are the ones that actually make the choice to go out there and set their tailgates up in that area and take full advantage of this opportunity. The Joe C administration, President Harris has got all this back on the table. Um, I think it's good for all, you know, all parties involved. I can't wait to see what it's going to look like here in the next three weeks. Yeah, absolutely. It's crazy that we're that close. Um, well, it's not all good news on the Sooners front. We did get some bad news yesterday with Williams Winery uh, committing to Missouri. I guess there's a little bit of maybe a, a little bit of a warning, a day's warning or so before that decision came to fruition, as opposed to David Hicks, which it'll be compared to probably for the end of time uh, in that scenario last year where we got maybe like 30 minutes of notice before, um, you know, all the, the craziness that happened there. But Tyler, I, I don't think anyone really wants to talk about it, but like we have to at this point because the number one overall player in the country goes to Missouri, the home state school after OU leads for him, it seems for the last six, eight months or so. Um, and then at the finish line, OU trips up. 
Yeah, and I think that the biggest thing, Adam, I mean, outside of the shock factor, um, you know, following this recruitment over the last six, eight months, and it really kind of started to change over the last 48 to 72 hours. Uh, but depending on who you listen to, depending on what recruiting site or, you know, which analyst, there was definitely kind of a mixed bag of, a, um, of messaging, I think. But also at the same time, too, when you look at some of the uh, the top recruiting insiders that follow this you know, on the Oklahoma side of the things, whether it's rivals, you know, on three, uh, you know, two, two, four, seven. I think that the messaging was also very, very similar. It was just a matter of how much did we want to really divulge and stick our neck out there. And obviously there's one guy right now that, you know, is kind of unfairly, you know, paying the price for that um, with some of the things that are going on uh, on social media, some of the things that are being said on the message boards that might be a little bit unfair. But yeah, it's just, we talked about it for the last three or four months. It's just another instance where when you're recruiting five-star defensive linemen, particularly the number one, you know, player in the country, you're going to have a reaction like this when you lose a guy to Missouri who, yes, isn't on the same you know playing field as Oklahoma when you talk about you know tradition and history and accomplishments. Um, but you know this was just something that there were there were a couple of factors that Oklahoma just couldn't overcome. Um, and I think that one of the interesting parts coming out of yesterday, Adam, when you heard some of the comments from Williams himself, from his coach, from his parents. I'm not so sure that the information that the recruiting sites and particularly some of the sources that were putting stuff out there, I don't know how truthful um, all parties involved were when it came to this recruitment over the last six months. And that's the game of recruiting, really, especially with these really high level players is that and we talked about that in the couple of weeks leading up to this, that, hey, we were on twist, you know, 40 out of 100. Uh, we were on twist 60 out of 100, you know, as we progress into it. And there's going to be twists and turns. There's probably going to be a few for David Stone. Uh, there's there's certainly going to be some for Dominic McKinley and so forth. Um, and it's easy to just remember all the losses and all the the David Hicks and all the Williams Winery, but easy to forget that, well, Devon Mitchell, you know, Taylor Tatum, Jaden Jackson, those were all, you know, either no drama wins for OU are ones that OU was completely out of the picture. And then all of a sudden OU comes into the picture and wins that. So it does go both ways. It, it certainly hurts that, yeah, the two positions of need that you have at Oklahoma, uh, defensive tackle, defensive end, um, OU has whiffed on, on the two biggest fish that they've had to go after over the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, yeah, I think, I think people, uh, people want to be mad at the messengers, you know, the, the Parkers, the Crimson captains of the world, things like that, that, um, you know, it's it's kind of on us as fans to get too wrapped onto it because, you know, like you said, it, we want to hear what we want to hear. So we'll go to those sources or we'll, um, you know, just look for the optimistic uh, report that comes out there and just latch onto that. But as we know, these battles are not won really up until not even after they commit, but, uh, you know, after they've actually put pen on paper and actually then sent that into the school in the case of uh, Peyton Bowen last year. So um, with David Stone, with with anybody that we think like Nigel Smith, I think we get a lot of uh, you know flack on Twitter for not mentioning him enough. But really, that's because he's pretty low drama. Like, who do we not mention as well? Like the guys who are actually committed. So I think I should tell you something about how a lot of people feel about Nigel Smith. But yes, like people do want to hear what they want to hear. Um, but these battles are never won until it's, it's completely over. Well, Adam, I think you make a really good point. And, you know, we've been guilty of this. Uh, I know that, you know, I kind of fell into this trap, you know, over the last two to three weeks, especially. But I, I do want to say one thing, you know, wh whether it's Josh, um, you know, with, with Sooner Scoop or, or Parker with OU Insider, you know, some of the other sources that were plugged into this recruitment. 
not a single one of them said that this was a done deal, surefire thing that Oklahoma was going to land this kid. Now, did some of now did some of these, you know, re- recruiting guys feel better uh, about the Oklahoma's, you know, current, you know, position with Williams Winery than than others? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's just the nature of the business in following recruiting. But I think that one of the biggest takeaways coming out of this recruitment, Adam, is that Williams Winery said that he chose Missouri over Georgia. There was no. Do you believe him? I do you really believe him on that because I I don't I, be, because of the fact that we know that Brent Venables and Miguel Chavis and this coaching staff were on the phone multiple times with this kid and his family you know with the last twenty four hours of this recruitment but you know the the fact that he made it a point to mention the fact that Oklahoma wasn't even in the top two it kind of makes you wonder what information was true what information was false that all of these recruiting insiders were getting from some of these sources over the last six months and. Adam, I think it really makes you wonder how much Oklahoma was seriously a player for Moneri, or was this an instance where Oklahoma was, I mean, I hate to say it, was this an instance where Oklahoma was essentially used by the family to drive the price tag up on Missouri for Williams Moneri services? I'm not sure that we'll ever know that, but you just hope that this isn't a situation, you know, time and time again, like we've seen over the last few years where, you know, yes, Oklahoma does have a seat at the table, but are these recruits and their families, now that NIL is a big part of college football, are they using Oklahoma's presence as leverage to get a bigger bag from some of these other programs? Yeah, I would take everything a recruit says with a grain of salt because these guys are in high school. They're not trained public speakers. They've really only been in the spotlight for the last eight months or so. Um, so they're they're probably not going to be the best communicators of exactly the situation. They're probably trying to just cover all their bases and everything. So I don't necessarily buy that Georgia was second, OU was third. Uh, but I think you do say something interesting there around, was OU just being used? And some people will look at this and simply go, oh, well, he just went off for the money. Well, OU had a very high bid in that regard too. Um, OU outbid for Jaden Jackson and some others uh, recently here as well. So OU's playing the NIL game. I think it's a very different situation than last year. I don't think OU got outbid necessarily in this scenario, but at a certain point, uh, you have to say, hey, we're not being used. Like either you you like us, like you're telling us, uh, and, and, and you know we have a very healthy offer on the table, or like it's, you're just using us to get a, get a higher bid. Um, and at, at that point, like maybe, I'm not saying you don't want Williams Winery, you definitely would take him in a heartbeat if he called you today and said, I'm on board. Um, but at some point, like you have to really want something more than just the money. You have to want Oklahoma. You have to want Brent Venables and the staff. You have to want the development that this program provides because, um, you know, Missouri really not offering very much there. And I know a lot of people think that their automatic Drinkwitz is going to get fired. I feel very differently there. But, um, but yeah, the big difference in the programs. You know, Adam, a lot of Oklahoma fans are, are asking this question now that we're 24 hours removed from this is, you know, is the relationship, you know, severed between Oklahoma and Williamsville area? No, I don't think that it is, but also – I think you have to realize it too that going into this upcoming season, we could go a perfect twelve and zero, and Missouri could go three and nine. And as long as Williams O'Neary and his family are making this decision based on NIL, I don't think it's going to matter at all for Oklahoma. Uh, Missouri had NIL in proximity to home, working in their favor, and you know, fair play to them. They used the the advantage that they had, and they played it, you know, played it in, uh, played it up, and they were able to get the commitment from this kid and. You know, I think that something that is very interesting, Adam, and there's been a lot of, you know, different interpretations uh, of, you know, this rule or this law that's gone into effect. But, I mean, according to Missouri State law, the way that I interpret it, it means that Williams O'Neary is going to have the ability to start collecting that that NIL money that he was promised on September 1st, three full months before the early signing day period. So you do have to kind of wonder, 
yes, you can continue to recruit this kid, but if he's going to, you know, start taking money from the folks up in Columbia, you know, here in just two weeks, is that, you know, just basically kind of an uphill battle that Oklahoma is never going to win or, I'm not sure. I don't think that this kid would do that, but does he take money from Missouri for the next three months? And then does he flip to Georgia or does he flip to Oklahoma at the very last minute, depending on what Eli Drinkowitz in Missouri does? And you look at Missouri's schedule, Adam. I know we talked about this time and time again in the group chat over the last couple of weeks, but I mean, that, that schedule that Missouri's got, I mean, after those first three to four games, I'm. I would be very hard pressed to think that Eli Drinkowitz in Missouri is going to, you know, reach their first bowl game since uh, Drinkowitz has been in Missouri, uh, has been at Missouri. So we'll see, uh, you know, it's, I, I don't think that it's something that is completely over, but I think that it's definitely less than 10% chance that this kid's going to shy away from Oklahoma, especially with some of the dollar figures that we've heard have been promised from Missouri to this kid and his family. Yeah, Missouri, uh, they did play in a bowl game last year, so they, they've played in some bowl games with Drinkwitz there. I've I still, think people – What was – So They went 6-7, and seven, same record as OU So Okay, year. so they did they win their bowl game? Because I thought they, they were lost, – They lost to Wake Forest in the bowl game. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. my mistake. Yeah. yeah. Now, I think people are so quick and easy to dim- dismiss Missouri because, oh, they haven't done anything lately. Um, you know, they, they win about six games a year, and that's about it. And – I think that's probably where Missouri will likely fall. But uh, if you dismiss them, I, I I think that's just very short-sighted. Like you, you have to remember that last year, this Missouri team beat South Carolina. They beat Arkansas already. Um, they have a very, you know, they probably are going to win three out of four of their non-conference games. So like there's some winnable games. They play Kentucky. Um, they get Vanderbilt every year. Like this is a team that I think could win six, seven games. And that's enough to keep Eli's job there. Um, and, and it's easy to, to just say, oh, well, OU has all this history of, of past, you know, success on the field. Well, we have to remember that Williams Winery is not an OU fan. He's not growing up rooting for OU. He doesn't know about uh, Baker Mayfield. You know, he, maybe he watched, but think about that. That's six, seven years ago at this point. Yeah. Like he was 12. He probably wasn't paying attention to college football. At best, maybe he was a Chiefs fan. I, I kind of think about this in, in we get a lot of people that, will respond to us on Twitter or on YouTube talking about guys from the Barry Switzer era. And that's cool. Like I know the name mm-hmm. Joe Washington. I know the name Billy Sims, but I don't really, I don't really understand that. I wasn't alive for that. Um, I understand Adrian Peterson and Sam Bradford mm-hmm. and, and so forth, but I don't understand pre Bob Stoops, uh, you know, OE football because I wasn't alive or was too young to remember that. And I think that's kind of the way that these recruits look at that and they go, okay, okay. Missouri was six and seven last year. OU was six and seven last year. Where are they going from here? Well, Based on what he saw last season, I know he'll see the trophies and all that, but it's just it's yeah. different if you were there and saw it versus if you're just being told about it. Well, and plus another, I think another thing too, Adam, that is interesting that you know people have been debating, you know, back and forth. You look at the the social media, Missouri fans, Oklahoma fans, going back uh, against one another regarding you know development, which program you know does a better job of putting you know defensive talent into the NFL, particularly on the defensive line and. You know, I thought that it was pretty concerning that, you know, Oklahoma, Gerald McCoy is pretty much, you know, the the only thing that we're able to really hang our hat on is, ter- you know, in terms of like Not a top much. one or two, you know, round draft pick. And then it kind of goes into a situation where they're saying, okay, well, Eli Drinkowitz has put one in there. And yes, I know that Oklahoma fans can go back to what Todd Bates and Brent Venables have, have done, you know, what their track record is at Clemson, you know, over the last decade. But at the same time, too, there's there's only so much there's only a, a a finite amount of time that I think that Brent Venables can sell the success uh, 
and you know getting kids you know drafted into the NFL uh, at Clemson and there comes a point in time where you've got to I mean you've got to live and die based off your results at the current school and I think that that's why it's so important for this upcoming season for Oklahoma where you know coming off of a six and seven year you've got to write the ship you've got to show progression you've got to go out there and based on this schedule and based on the upgraded talent across this roster you've got to go out there and win 10 games this upcoming fall you've got to show that this program is moving in the direction in the right direction and then i think that as good as the recruiting has been and we'll touch on this here in a second because the sky is not falling um but you've got to go out there this upcoming fall and you've got to win games and continue that momentum to close out a really strong 2024 class and continue building the momentum of what is a very very good start to the class of 2025 yeah i think you you nailed on the head like step one is go prove it on the field Mm -hmm. go put someone in the draft potentially this year we'll we'll see there's not a lot of candidates there it's it's a lot of guys that um are are probably really good college players but i don't know if there's necessarily pros along that defensive line but uh continue to develop continue to put results on the field and then secondly where you go from here is you know go keep a a no shenanigans uh recruiting uh, situation with nigel smith and david stone lock those two guys down over the next month here Um, continue to make strides with danny okoye who i think you know he's not the number one player in the country but could be a nice replacement. Um, I wouldn't call him a replacement because OU was going to, you know, take him regardless of what Winery uh, uh, picked. But um, if you can uh, get Okoye to, to become a part of this class, that makes up a lot of difference there. Uh, and then Dominic McKinley, you you know, you take your chances there. It sounds like it's a real battle at this point. Maybe OU um, not in the first position there, but um, who knows what could happen? A lot of time left there. What else does OU need to do, you know, to to help remove the sting here and? I guess maybe is there a chance that uh, OU makes a run at him by uh, early signing day? I'm not as sold. Oh, let me let me backtrack here. I don't. Th- I'm not one that's in the belief that Oklahoma is firmly in the driver's seat position for Danny Okoye. I still think that it's probably a situation where Texas is a little bit further out ahead. Tennessee is obviously vying for his services as well. Um, but you know, I, I said just a little while ago, yes, it does sting anytime that you think that you're in contention to land the number one player in the country on the defensive line. And then you lose them at the last minute to a program like Missouri. Yeah, it is going to sting for quite a while, but also at the same time too, the sky is not falling when the fact that you've got David Stone committing on the 26th, 11 days away, if you can go up there and you can you know, ultimately land his commitment. I think that many fans, many guys on the coaching staff would tell you that if there was one guy on the defensive line, if there was one five-star out there right now that Oklahoma has to have going forward, going into the SEC, it's David Stone on the interior. So if you can lock down David Stone, by all indications, unless anything has changed, Oklahoma sits in a very good position, and uh, I think that Oklahoma is going to be the pick here in two weeks. And then you lock down Nigel Smith the first week of September to go along with White Gilmore and Jane Jackson, who are currently already on the board. You know, that's four guys. That's a really good defensive line class. And then I think anything after that, Dominic McKinley, I'm not as sold on where Oklahoma is as some right now. I think that's going to be an Ohio State-Texas battle. We'll see if Todd Bates or maybe some of that NIL money that was going to be promised to Williams-Wanary. We'll see if that, you know, being shifted over to that direction, if that changes anything. But I mean, you you lock down a class of David Stone, Nigel Smith, White Gilmore, and Jane Jackson, and then if you throw in a Danny Okoye, who, yes, I know he's not as highly ranked as some of the other guys that Oklahoma's vying for, but if you were to put that kid, um, you know, at uh, at Jinx or Tulsa Union or Denton Geyer, 
that kid's a high four star, you know, maybe even potentially reaching five star with the, you know, uh, how talented he is and what his measurables are. But the sky's not falling. Now, go lock down David Stone. If Oklahoma does not get David Stone on the 26th, if he chooses to go somewhere else like a Miami or Michigan State, then we have to really – we're going to devote an entire episode to really kind of peeling back uh, the, the recruiting philosophy and what Oklahoma is doing or, I guess, not doing. But sky's not falling. Take a breath. The season is three weeks away. We've still got a lot of really, really good prospects that Oklahoma is in the running for to potentially close out this class. Um, just take it one day at a time and move on. Let's move on from this subject because <laughs> okay. enough bad news here. Um, I actually have one more little – I don't know if I would consider it bad news. I thought this was kind of funny, Tyler. Normally podcasts, they'll they'll read off the five-star reviews, the good things that people are saying. We got a one-star review on on Apple Podcasts. I thought I'd read this because I thought it was kind of funny. If you disagree with this review, stop what you're doing. Open your Apple Podcast app. Give us a five-star review. Let us know. But this is funny. One star. It says, these guys are why everyone hates OU fans. Nothing but pathetic excuses and delusion. (laughs) <laughs> I thought that was funny. Um, appreciate that person for yeah. listening. Um, if you, uh, I, I can take it. I'll take it. So let's go ahead and move on to the offensive breakdown. And we will start with the quarterback position, of course. Dylan Gabriel, the returning starter here. Jackson Arnold, the five-star right behind him. If anyone else is playing meaningful snaps, we're in huge trouble here at Oklahoma. So we'll focus mainly on those two guys. Uh, but Dylan Gabriel returns. By most stats that you look at, you know, he was a top 25 quarterback a year ago, but he was probably in that 20 to 25 range. So obviously a lot of room for growth here uh, from his game, from those clutch moments, from those fourth down scenarios, from really just making that one pass uh, completion that he wasn't a year ago, because I think that really does. It's kind of a cliche, but it takes him from good to great. And I hope OU fans are able to appreciate that because mm-hmm. he should be more comfortable in year two uh, at Oklahoma. And uh, we'll we'll see what happens here on the field. Adam, the crazy part about Dylan Gabriel, when you look at his statistics over the course of his career, you know, everybody was extremely high about this kid coming out of UCF. You go back to 2019, 2020, you know, this kid has a, had a completion percentage of right at about 60%, uh, 30, about 36, 3,700 yards uh, each of those two seasons. And then you look at what he did at Oklahoma a year ago, 62.7% completion percentage. That's the highest of his career so far. And even though he was hurt for the full Texas game, you know, almost three quarters of the TCU game, he still threw for nearly 3,200 yards and had a passer rating that was just as good, if not better, than what he did during his two seasons in Oklahoma. So I, I think that going into this year, another season with Jeff Levy, a full off season with, uh, you know, uh, you know, Schmitty. Um, we've got some good weapons at the wide receiver position, even though a lot of those guys are unproven at this point. There are a lot of weapons that DG is going to have at his disposal. And I think that this is going to be an opportunity where uh, Dylan Gabriel is going to build off his performance in the Cheez-It Bowl a year ago, where I thought he played his best game in an Oklahoma uniform against Florida State. And I'm really excited about what uh, what eight's going to do this upcoming season. Um, and I think that I think you could also probably make the claim, Adam, that Dylan Gabriel, he's taken his game to the next level, but he's also kind of been forced to do so just because of Jackson Arnold coming in behind him, a guy that, you know, when you look at his arm and you watch the way he throws the football, has a higher ceiling than Dylan. But just at this point, you know, right now, a guy that's playing his fifth year of football compared to a true freshman, um, you know, Dylan obviously takes the cake. But I'm expecting a very, very good season out of Dylan Gabriel. 
I'm expecting the same thing, and I'm hoping that most OU fans are are hoping for that as well. Um, I know uh, the Crimson Captain's doing a really cool series on the uh, fan survey results. I've I've seen a peek at some of those yeah. as far as uh, and one question that was asked on there specifically was assuming you know complete health in the quarterback room, uh, does Jackson Arnold start more than one or one or more games uh, this year? And it's probably about three out of ten OU fans are expecting Jackson Arnold to just overtake Dylan Gabriel and start games this year. I don't see any way, any scenario that that happens this year. I mean, he's a guy that he threw just six interceptions last year, so you know he's going to take care of the ball. He's not going to have a Spencer Rattler scenario where he's just giving the ball away. It, it Just based on you know three-plus years of him starting, yeah, yeah. he hasn't done that yet. He's not going to start that now. He's going to look more comfortable. Uh, we saw some of his best football at the end of the year there, like you mentioned, against Florida State, against Texas Tech. So this is a guy that... I, he's not going to relinquish this position, and OU fans shouldn't want that because unless your name is Trevor Lawrence, five-star quarterbacks usually are pretty up and down as true freshman quarterbacks. We all like to conveniently forget about Caleb Williams and the way he played against Iowa State and Baylor in his true freshman year and only selectively remember the really great game against Texas that he had. Mm-hmm. So so if we want success for this team, uh, we need Dylan Gabriel to be one of those top 25 and really preferably a top 15 quarterback. I think he's certainly capable of that. Yeah. It's harder to look at some of his stats last year because he did have a game and a half that he he truly missed and, and that really hurt some of his stats. But um, you know, look at, you know, what he did on a yards per completion perspective, um, number 14 in the country. Um, look at what he did from passing touchdowns, number 25. You know, you add in a game and a half, he probably moves up into the top 20 there. So um, I think there's a lot of ways that he'll just look a lot better at the end of the day um, as, as a Sooner with more control over the offense. And I think just overall, Brent Venables and Jeff Levy, more collaborative on, okay, how do we how do we help the health of this team mm-hmm. and the tempo and the pace and the way we um, you know call some of those you know certain situational um, strategies there. So I'm expecting some big things out of Dylan Gabriel. Well, and Adam, when let you- me ask – well, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, when you look at Dylan's statistics and his you know entire career in college so far, he's he has well over thirteen hundred pass attempts, and he's only thrown twenty interceptions. So he does a really good job of taking care of the football. And then when you try to forecast what are some areas in which you know DG can be better for the two thousand twenty three season, it's obviously the first one that comes to mind are you know the the plays in between the hash marks. It's the throws over the middle. Um, you know, that was something that, you know, Dylan, you know, struggled a bit with last year, the high throws. So we'll see if Austin Stogner, that big, you know, tied in target, if he can make a difference uh, for DG this year. Third downs is one where Dylan struggled a little bit last year, you know, making some air throws on crucial downs. But then I think I think the biggest thing, Adam, where you're going to see a real difference from Dylan this upcoming year, knowing that you have a competent backup in Jackson Arnold, I think that the quarterback run game is going to be something that Oklahoma is going to not rely on, but you're definitely going to see Dylan using his legs a lot more, um, which if you if you watch any of Jeff Levy's offenses over the last five, six years, particularly with Matt Corral at, at Ole Miss, he likes to utilize the quarterback run game, the read option, the quarterback draw, and I think that he's going to have the ability to kind of take the handcuffs off of Dylan and do that a little bit more this season. Certainly a, a piece of the puzzle that we just weren't able to utilize at all last year. And so uh, we really didn't get to see what Dylan Gabriel's running ability was, in my opinion. But I'm excited to see what that looks like. Now that now that we've kind of gotten out of the way that like 
Dylan Gabriel's our guy. He, we're expecting him to probably be a top 15 quarterback. I think he's probably right in that tier nationally. There's Lincoln There's on the, the podcast, dog. as there always. Lincoln the dog. But I, I think right <laughs> behind, like, your Caleb Williams, your Drake Mays type of, you know, elite-level quarterbacks, I think Dylan Gabriel should be able to settle into that second tier right behind mm-hmm. some of those those really elite guys. But Jackson Arnold, we don't expect him to start any games this year unless there's injuries. What's best-case scenario look like for Arnold? It's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, obviously, in one instance, you want to see Jackson Arnold, but also at the same time, too, you really don't because if you're not seeing Jackson Arnold, that means that Dylan Gabriel is, one, staying healthy, and he's also playing really well. Um, So I think best-case scenario for Oklahoma, you use the first two to three games, the Arkansas States, the SMUs, the Tulsas, you use that as an opportunity to get him in. Uh, maybe play a quarter, maybe even a half if Oklahoma takes care of business and plays the way that they should against those inferior opponents, then I think that you could ultimately see, you know, at least a half, you know, maybe even maybe even a little bit more against some of those to kind of ease Jackson Arnold into this uh into this season at the, as a division one football player. And then, you know, as we get a little bit closer towards the end of the season, conference play, you know, whether it is an Iowa State or uh, you know, maybe a West Virginia, something like that, then you could possibly see Jackson Arnold in full time. You just don't want to have a situation where when you look up at the end of the season, he has next to no experience whatsoever, and he'll ultimately be taking his first meaningful snaps of, of you know, highly competitive, you know, Division One Power 5 football in the SEC against some of those defenses. So best case scenario, you ease him into some of those games, get him familiar uh, at playing at this level against this type of competition at this speed. Um, You just don't want to see him having to play any meaningful rest because that means, one, Dylan Gabriel's hurt, or two, Dylan Gabriel's just not playing good football whatsoever. And that spells major problems for Oklahoma. I think the best success for him in 2023 is maybe somewhat out of his control and it's really just hey we need him to probably play in about six or seven games and I think that's pretty easy in the non-conference schedule like he'll be able to play hopefully a good chunk of that second half against Arkansas State mm-hmm. uh, maybe maybe same thing against Tulsa potentially similar against SMU if the defense can hold up there but beyond that there's a lot of teams in the Big 12 that OU should be able to create some separation from your Iowa States your West Virginias and so forth and so if this team is reaching full potential like we think they they could then like that's great we're going to see a lot of jackson arnold in that scenario because we will have some healthy leads in some of those games Um, but i also wouldn't shy away from using him in you know the second quarter against uh cincinnati for example like give him like two or three plays maybe to to lead off a series um hand the ball off once make an easy completion just get out there get in a road environment i I don't think that's um I, i i don't expect to see it but I wouldn't mind seeing at the same time either. Like right. just have a couple plays, some safe, easy plays to run. Probably you would run those with Dylan Gabriel anyway. Um, and then like, you know, just have him out there on the field to, to get some experience doing that. I would love to see him in some meaningful snaps um, just to ratchet up the experience. Well, and Adam, if we do get to see him, I hope it's a situation where they leave the ones in there for him to lead that yeah. offense. And it's not, it's not a scenario where he's playing with the twos or even the third string, you know, guards or something like that. If you're going to allow this kid to go in there and play, give him, you know, the, his, you know, give him his, uh, you know, all the tools in his belt, give him the full capability to lead that offense. And, uh, you just hope it's not one of those situations or again, depending on which way you want to look at it. If you do put him in and he's just so good that you don't want to take him off the field. Then you get yourself into a situation like we saw with Caleb and Spencer, where the minute Dylan makes a mistake, 
people are automatically going to be saying, okay, Jackson Arnold, let's see it. Let's kind of slow down a little bit. Um, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And <laughs> careful what you wish for. As good as, of, uh, as good of a player as Caleb was his first year, everybody remembers the Texas game. Didn't look so good in Stillwater. Didn't look so good in Waco. I mean, there are some freshman growing pains that kind of comes with the territory once you go from high school to Division One football. Um, but we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Two guys who were true freshmen last year were the running backs, uh, Javante Barnes and Gavin Sawchuck. Kind of that two-headed monster that we're expecting to lead the backfield uh, this fall. You've also got some uh, more freshmen, Caleb Hicks, Dalen Smothers in the mix there. You've got an old veteran and Marcus Major guy who feels like he's been around OU for a really long time. Um, and then I guess what some walk-ons. I know everyone likes to talk about uh, Tawi Walker. Um, people were talking about him a ton last year. Really didn't play any meaningful snaps. I don't expect that uh, again this year to, to change. Um, but uh, you've got your two-headed monster there. Tyler, I'll put you on the spot right now. Who do you think is going to lead this backfield statistically from a yards perspective and a touchdown perspective? I'm going to go Javante Barnes on both of those. Um, many people talk about, try to project, okay, is Oklahoma going to have the ability to have two 1,000-yard rushers? And the the immediate answer is yes, when you've got guys as talented as Barnes and Salchuk. But I think that it is, it is going to be an instance where they're going to use the first two to three games to try to find out who that – you know, that that alpha is in that room. And I think it's going to be Javante Barnes. Uh, but even though you've got guys like Tawi Walker or you've got Marcus Major, who I'm close to calling the Perry Ellis of college football because he's <laughs> been around for so long, um, you hope that he can stay healthy because when he is healthy, you know, he does have the ability to be a difference maker. Uh, but I think it's going to be very similar to like, to what we saw with Samaje and, and Joe, with, with Kennedy and, and Trey Sermon, where you're going to have a one-two punch, a thunder and lightning with Javante Barnes and Gavin Salchuk. Um, and again, if, if this offensive line can progress and play as well, and I like some of the things that we're hearing coming out of fall camp over the course of the last three weeks of practice, if the offensive line continues to gel and they can play, uh, play well, I think that Oklahoma is going to get back to running the football at a much, much higher level. Um, and I, I expect, uh, I expect a big year out of all the running backs, particularly Javante Barnes. Yeah, 100% agree with you. And we're going to talk about receivers here in a second, but that's kind of a big reason that, yeah, I think it's going to be more of a ground game offense yeah. or at least a bigger focus, at least early on until some of the footing is gained for uh, those younger receivers. And so I, I am going to go with Javante Barnes as my stat leader there. Uh, I think he's just going to be his, his trust level is a lot higher. Gavin Sawchuk was kind of a situation where you, I think you had to play him more in that bowl game. Um, not that they didn't see his talent. Obviously, he proved that. But I think Barnes has a full season of of you know, building that trust with the coaches, mm -hmm. which you do want a lot of trust in ball security and pass protection at that position. So I think Barnes gets first crack at it. I think he probably finishes somewhere around like 900 yards, nine touchdowns for the year. Um, I, I would like to feel a little bit better about his health situation um, just because he got dinged up a lot last year and missed some time. So um, I'd like to think he's a little bit more durable there. Um, and then I think Solchuk also will be highly productive as well. But I think Barnes is the guy that you start with, at least in the most games early in the season, and give him the line share. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But not at all to say that like we're down on Solchuk or anything. I think he's, he's going to be really, really solid as well. But that leads us to the third running back position there, whoever's going to be that third. It sounds like Marcus Major is going to be the guy to at least start the year, but Tyler, are you rolling with Marcus Major to be the third running back by the time the year wraps up? If he can stay healthy, yes. Um, absolutely. I think that he probably has the biggest upside if he ha does have the ability to stay healthy for a full season. But I think that you're going to see when you, when you try to project the third, uh, you know, a third string running back kind of depends on how you want to do it. 
Um, is it going to be a guy like Tawi Walker who's going to be used primarily on you know third and shorts or goal line situations? He's a bowling ball. Or is this going to be an instance where DeMarco Murray – he likes Caleb Hicks so much. And, you know, you, you look at, you go around some of the other sources, some of the other podcasts. I think Gabe and Teddy a week ago said that they, when they were out of practice for two or three sessions, they thought that Caleb Hicks was the best looking running back. And that included Javante Barnes and Gavin Sawchuk. So maybe it is an instance where a guy like Caleb Hicks, who's a little bit more of a physical, well put together running back, maybe he's that closer role. Um, that we, you know, came to see Trey Sermon, what he became so so famous for during his time in Oklahoma. Um, go with Caleb Hicks. Let's ride the young guys. Yeah. I, I really want Marcus Major to have a fully healthy season so too. we can see what he can do over the course of a year. Uh, a guy that, by most fans' perspectives, probably would have transferred or should have transferred at this point, but he stuck around. Um and when he's been on the field, I don't think he's been dead weight or anything. I think no. he's produced. No. Um, he just hasn't been able to stay super healthy. And so, again, it goes back to trust at that position. He's a guy that's been playing for a long time. I think the coaches will trust him a little bit more than they would for a true freshman. So, barring injuries, I, I do expect him to uh, to be that third running back. Mm-hmm. Anything else here on the running back position before we jump over to receivers? No, not really. I just think that Oklahoma's sitting in a really good um, spot right now, and you got to give a lot of credit to DeMarco Murray. I think that the running back position two years ago, there was a lot of question marks about it, but he's been able, you know, with, with the last two recruiting cycles, he's been able to really transform this room, and I actually think that the running back is, you know, one of the stronger positions on this football team. There's a lot of different different types of backs, a lot of versatility, guys with different skill sets, and it's going to be fun to to watch how DeMarco Murray and Jeff Levy choose to utilize these guys because they've got a really solid, talented collection of backs at their disposal. Yeah. I think you you like that there's multiple multiple options, not that you don't have a, a 1A, but you definitely have a 1B uh, mm-hmm. in that scenario. Like last sure. year, it felt like it was Eric Gray and nothing else um, in a lot of ways. So. Um, you like the depth that's been built up there. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, the receiver room has a lot of unknowns, a lot of uh, question marks. Um, Jalil Farouk returns with about 400 plus yards uh, from last year. But other than that, a lot of unknowns as far as what this receiver room might look like. Everyone kind of assumes that Farouk is going to be the lead receiver there. But I don't know. I'm, I'm starting to wonder at this point because... I mean, he only had 400 and some yards uh, last season. He wasn't really a focal point. Uh, he just kind of had some, uh, some, some receptions here and there, and it added up over the course of the season. He's not really a deep threat. So I just wonder if his versatility is more limited than maybe some other guys on the roster. So, Tyler, if you had to choose today, is Jalil Farouk more of a 600-yard receiver or more of a 1,200-yard receiver? Got to go either or here. I think that he's probably closer to a 600 um, type receiver. But I will say this, when you look at what some of the things that Jalil does extremely well, whether it's route running, whether it's, you know, making plays when he's got the ball in his hands, Oklahoma is able to really utilize him in a handful of different ways, you know, both catching the football down the field, but also, you know, in the, in the jet sweep type of role. I think that Jalil definitely has the ability to get to that, you know, uh, above the 1,000-yard mark. But I think a lot of that is predicated upon how much help he's getting from some of the other wide receivers in that room. Because if you can find a second and third guy, whether it's a Drake Stoops, a Gavin Freeman, an Andre Anthony, who by everything that we've heard is having one hell of a fall camp uh, here in Norman, if you're able to get 
two or three guys that can consistently make plays for Dylan Gabriel, then it takes away the ability for that opposing secondary to bracket Jaleel Farouk, to put it, to stick a safety over the top. And if you can get some good production from three or four different guys, it's going to give Jaleel Farouk more one-on-one opportunities. And, you know, one-on-one, I, I like my guy better than almost anybody else in college football. And I think Jaleel's going to have the opportunity to, to have a big-time year for Oklahoma. Yeah. Farouk is is a guy that, yeah, I think he's just going to be highly uh, reliable, but I, I just wonder what the ceiling is. Like, is it, could he do a thousand yards or is he more like the guy that's going to go for 750 yards, Yeah, which is still fantastic, but it begs the need for someone else to come into play there. And I, I just wonder who that is, because if you go back and look at past history of like a guy that really didn't do much one year that was on the team, but then suddenly blew up and became the number one receiver. There's not really, there's not a track record of OU doing that. There's guys coming in from junior college or guys transferring in from other schools. Um, I think the biggest jump maybe I saw from like year one to year two of like not uh, uh, literally doing like not much of anything was probably like Jazz Reynolds. That's a really old name. I think he went for like 250 yards one year and then actually took a year off. I think maybe he was not with the team, came back, did 750 yards. So I just wonder, like, how much impact could Jaden Gibson or Nick Anderson or Gavin Freeman actually provide, um, especially if Farouk is not, you know, taking a huge leap forward? Like, could one of those guys be the number one receiver on this team? I just, I just wonder, and I have a hard time seeing that. But maybe you, maybe you feel differently. Maybe you feel more, more highly on one of these younger guys. Well, let's not forget, Adam. What's a what's a quarterback and a wide receiver's best friend? It's a really solid running game. So if Oklahoma's offensive line can play uh, up to the Bill Beanball expectations, if you know Javante Barnes, Gavin Free, or excuse me, Javante Barnes, Gavin Sawchuck can have you know the type of performances all season long that we expect them to, that's just going to make things easier for the guys out wide. Um, so again, if you were asking me to project right now, is it closer to six hundred or is it closer to twelve hundred? If Oklahoma at all the other positions is playing up to the expectations that we, you know, we uh, come to expect from those guys in Crimson and Cream, then I think that it's probably a better chance that he does get closer to 1,200 than 600. Um, but I'm buying all the stock in Jaquez Petaway, and I'm loving what I'm hearing out of Andre Anthony so far. Um, I think that what is what is thought to have been a weak position for this football team, I'm starting to kind of come around to the idea of it. It's just a matter of can they execute on Saturday starting here in three weeks. Yeah, Andre Anthony, I, I'm I'm super excited to see because was it just a situation at Michigan where he wasn't in the right offense, or is he kind of is he kind of is what he is uh, in a scenario? And I kind of look back at past, I, I look back to the past a ton to see what type of role he might play because I could give comparison, not in any way of play style at all, but in terms of production and uh, value to the team, like. Is he going to be Jeff Bidette, the type of guy that early in the season is a is a useful piece, but eventually seeds way to a, a younger player, maybe like a Petaway, for example, who uh, I'm really starting to get on that bandwagon with mm-hmm. you on Petaway. Or is Anthony more of like a Geno Lewis, a transfer from Penn State that was more of a season-long uh, feature for uh, Landry Jones? More of a possession guy. Well, and not not at all in terms of that, because like totally different players, but like a guy that just was productive throughout the year mm-hmm. at a consistent level. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious to see that there, but yeah, I mean, there's so many different interesting guys, and it it 
you can go around and around and around about all of them because we just really haven't seen much of any of them. Well, and I mean, you go back to Jeff Levy's moniker for his offense, it's score from far. And when you look at the wide receiver position, I mean, there's there's elite, not I wouldn't say track speed across the board. There's definitely a couple guys that do have that. But I mean, there is speed all across the board. Farouk, Anthony, Petaway, uh, Freeman, Brennan, uh, Brennan Thompson. Um, you know, even Nick Anderson and Jaden Gibson, you know, who have been clocked to, you know, extremely high speeds once they get the ball in their hands. But yeah, even though it is an unproven group right now, I, I like what, uh, what Emma Jones is doing, coaching those guys up. And, uh, it's just going to be, it's just going to come down to it plain and simple. Can they make plays on Saturdays? And we're going to find out in just three short weeks. I can't yeah. believe how close it is. Like it, it always sneaks up on us, but I mean, the, the fact that here we are, what is it, 17 days away, 18 days away from football season? It's it's best time of year. It doesn't get any better. Definitely. Now, the position group that's going to be supporting the wide receivers, of course, is the tight ends. Kind of a an old familiar face in Austin Stogner and then a complete mystery beyond that. So let's start with Stogner. And the last time we saw him at OU, well, I guess it was 2021. I, I he, That was the year he came back from the injury. Uh, 2020 was really his best year in a Sooner uniform. Had 422 yards, three touchdowns. Uh, that's less than what Braden Willis provided last year from that position. Different player, different style, but do you think that Austin Stogner will be able to at least meet those numbers that he had in his best season in 2020? Well, his best season in 2020 was 422 yards and three touchdowns. Uh, yes, I do fully expect him to surpass both of those numbers, especially the touchdown mark. Like I said, what was what was Dylan's biggest struggle a year ago? It was making throws over the middle of the field. And I think that Austin Stogner, while he's not as athletic as a Brain Willis, I think that he's going to be a more than viable option for Dylan to be able to execute those plays over the middle of the field. And um, I, I think that people are really – underestimating yes i know the health has been a little bit of a concern but he did just come off of a year where he played football in the sec he went up against georgia against the alabamas uh, of the world and coming back to the big 12 i think that i think that even though he's not as athletic maybe doesn't have as high of a ceiling as a mark andrews definitely not a jermaine gresham i still think that he's going to be a uh, you know he's going to be a difference maker for oklahoma this upcoming year and i think that you're going to see a big uh big uptick in production from Austin Stogner compared to 2020. So this is interesting because we took this question to Twitter to get some, uh, some fan response as far as what they expected out of Austin Stogner. Sure. I was kind of surprised at some of the uh, positive outlooks for him. It seems like you're more on the positive side. I think that he will get more than three touchdowns. Um, I think he'll probably be less yardage wise than 422. I think he'll be more in the 350 range. Um, so I kind of in, a, in alignment with what Sooner Paul responded on Twitter. Um, basically, he's expecting about 400 yards, six touchdowns. Um, hopefully, should be a first down machine. I would love to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I like, like you mentioned there, over in the middle of the field. Um, we also got Sooner Shane kind of more in your line of thinking, 700 yards receiving, six touchdowns. I just wonder at this point, like, is he, I mean, he's been in college for enough time that we kind of know who he is. Maybe he wasn't the right fit at South Carolina. We know that, you know, Spencer Rattler was his quarterback, but his best year was also with Spencer Rattler as the full-time starter. So I just wonder like what his health level is, what, like, is OU going to diminish that position? Um, or, you know, like uh, Foster KE said, you know, is he going to be a red zone machine? Uh, that was a good submission we got on Twitter there. So I don't know. I have a lot of questions uh, there in regards to Stogner. 
Well, I think it's going to be interesting to to watch how Jeff Levy utilizes him. I mean, is he going to be a guy that you can spread out wide? I don't necessarily think so. Um, I think that, you know, his bread's going to be buttered. He's going to have the opportunity to make, you know, his fair share of plays lining up on the line of scrimmage and, and coming off that way because um, he does have the ability to be a red zone nightmare for opposing team defenses. If you could get him, you know, matched up on a linebacker or, you know, a um, – uh, a shorter, smaller stature safety, then I think he has an opportunity to make some plays. But then I think, honestly, Adam, depth is a huge concern at this position for me because once you get past Austin Stogner, where where do you go? Like, wh- who do you turn to next? I know that there's been a lot of talk about, you know, Jace Llewellyn, and he's, he's, you know, coming back from injuries. Uh, Blake Smith, the transfer from Texas A&M, you know, we even heard from Brent Venables, uh, you know, 24 hours ago. He was hyping up some of the things that he's seen from the the Michigan State transfer, Hampton Fay, um, who's, you know, uh, t- uh, quarterback turned tight end. He's making some plays um, out there. So it, it just kind of remains to be seen. But it, there's one thing to kind of tie this into recruiting. You look at uh, Devon Mitchell, who's going to be coming in. You look at Oklahoma is continuing to make headway, um, ultimately, in the 2025 class. We've got some uh, positive uh, news from the uh, one of the Roberts brothers out of Washington, Oklahoma, decommitted from, uh, from Notre Dame earlier today. Um, so, again, you just – you've got to play good aggressive football, but tight end is probably the one position on this football team that you cannot afford an injury uh, to, to, to the starter because after that it's pretty bare. Yeah. A year ago, Daniel Parker was our number two tight end. He had four receptions for 28 yards. So OU fans really didn't have to learn his name. He was more of a blocking. Um, oh, and he was a hell of a blocker. I yeah. Mean, he's a great give blocker, him, but more credit where it's due. But so was Braden Willis. So, like, mm-hmm. with Braden Willis, you had a guy you didn't want to take off the field. With Stogner, I think you probably, because of health concerns from the past and, and just being able to manage that position better, I think you'd like to get some other guys in the mix there. But, yeah, it becomes a question of, like, well, who? And, you know, Josh Fanul, a name that you didn't bring up earlier, but the, the former basketball player that's playing football for the very first time, I feel like he'll probably do something, you know, late in a game against Tulsa or something that will wow people. Um, but I don't think he'll be a, you know, an effective, um, you know, guy to play a ton of snaps. And then Kate, uh, Kate McIntyre, the, the true freshman, everyone loves, you know, what he looks like physically, but how effective will he be? So yeah, you'd love to see someone really separate themselves there to become that number two guy, because mm-hmm. it is a complete mystery and definitely a concern because we, we know that Stogner has missed some time with injuries in the past. Sure. So sure. Um, let's move to offensive line here to wrap up the uh, podcast here. A lot of hype going into fall camp, uh, currently in fall camp, around what this group's able to provide. You know, they lost two NFL draft picks last year in Anton Harrison and Wanye Morris, but bring in Walter Rouse uh, from Stanford, bring in Tyler Guyton, uh, who was in reserves last year, but everyone's very high on him. You've got a couple pieces in the middle there, some talent across the board. So, Tyler, like, what, what for you in this group here, what does success look like for them? You lead the Big 12 in rushing, plain and simple. Uh, when you've they got did it last year, didn't they? Uh, they were, I believe so. I think they did. I th- and yeah. you know, from some of the things that are coming out of Norman, particularly you know Bill Beanbow, they might even feel better about this offensive line as a whole than they did a year ago, which is saying a lot when you've got two offensive tackles drafted in the first uh, first three rounds. But yeah, when when you look at the stable of backs that Oklahoma is going to have at their disposal. I know that Kansas State is returning, you know, a huge portion, if not all, of their uh, experience a year ago on the offensive line. But, I mean, if, if you're at Oklahoma, if you're Jeff Levy and, you know, you make your money on running the football and, you know, beating people to death um, over the course of four quarters, 
then yeah, you got to lead the conference in rushing and uh, you got to keep uh, Dylan Gabriel upright in pass protection, which when you look at this schedule, Adam, outside of Texas, TCU is going to have some playmakers out on the edge. Um, we dodge Tech, we dodge Baylor, we dodge uh, Kansas State. Those are really kind of three teams that have given Oklahoma fits the last couple of years uh, with their front sevens. Yeah, you go out there and you lead the conference in rushing. Uh, there's no excuse not to. I definitely want to see a bigger improvement on the pass protection side of things. Last year, OU finished number 81 nationally and sacks allowed with 31 on the year. So I I think that's one thing that gets overlooked a lot in regards to Dylan Gabriel's performance because that's directly tied to it. Um, But if he's able to have a little bit better protection, I think his season turns out a lot better last year. So um, new pieces in there, some with experience, whether it be at OU or elsewhere. But um, for me, I would really just like to see, I think, the best – five players out on the field um not necessarily it feels like every week i'm i'm putting Matire on uh kind of a pedestal to shame there but um we need the best version of rain we need the best version of Savion bird um and we need some of these younger guys to kind of overtake some of these older guys in my opinion um just because i think that bodes well for the overall ceiling and success mm-hmm. of what this offensive line is able to provide because you're only as good as your your offensive line. If you have a bad offensive line, unless your quarterback is is Caleb Williams, who um, can really erase a lot of deficits there, like you're only as good as what that offensive line is able to do. So early and often would love to see this offensive line uh, paving the way for, for uh, these running backs and for protecting Dylan Gabriel. We talked a few minutes ago about Jackson Arnold, a true freshman, you know, the ability for him to get on the field and see, you know, playing time early in his career at Oklahoma, preparing him, you know, ultimately for next season where he's the starter. I think a similar argument needs to be made for some of the guys in the offensive line room. I mean, just looking at what is the projected starting five, you've got three guys that are, you know, seniors or redshirt seniors that are going to be gone after this upcoming season. And that doesn't even include Tyler Guyton, who after this upcoming year is still going to have another year of eligibility left. So I think, you know, for Oklahoma to – You've got to play good, solid, complimentary football because you've got to put some of these inferior teams away early so that it gives you know Bill Beanbaugh the opportunity to play a Jacob Sexton, to play a Jake Taylor, a Troy Everett, get Josh Bates in there a little bit because those are guys that you're going to be relying upon once you get into the SEC 12 months from now. Uh, we just hope that Oklahoma gives them the opportunity to do so. Definitely. Well, that's going to be a wrap for our offensive breakdown preview next week. It's going to be defense and special teams and whatever else the wind might blow our direction. So we will, uh, we will certainly see, but appreciate everyone for listening or watching if you're on YouTube and uh, we will see everyone again next week for another episode of the mainline podcast. <laughs>